<coughs> Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you to Anthony uh, for inviting me. Also a pleasure for me to be here. Speaking for about Brexit and of course a very key team, banking and finance, and what is the impact on this sector for the UK. Um, I come from SEPS, a think tank in Brussels, which I think is the largest think tank in Brussels. We are a fully independent think tank. We have no government funding. We participate a lot in uh, EU studies, but also studies for national governments, but also for private sector, for foundations, etc. Brexit has been a big theme of our work, even before the vote. We did uh, several publications on Brexit, which were led, amongst others, by a person which some of you may know, Michael Emerson. We, for example, analyzed the balance of competences review, all these big I mean, studies which were done by many ministries and, and the in the UK to look at the impact of uh, Brexit on which basically the results were not taken into account. Let's say that's what we can say. But also since the Brexit vote, we have done a lot of work on all the different impacts of Brexit on EU policies. Of course, we essentially look at the EU and not EU policies. We don't look so much about the, uh, at the UK. Uh, what I will try to do is um, speak basically about, let's say, the um, first of all, what is the... Uh, UK banking and finance market, what is, what is the impact on the UK banking and finance market, what is the impact on another aspect of it, which is the city, because we have to distinguish between UK banking and finance and then the city. Look at, let's say, the, what makes a financial centre, then look at, let's say, what are the challenges for the financial sector today, and then come to some conclusions that what may be the impact of uh, Brexit. Um, overall, let's say my line would be is that we have to a bit de-dramatize all this talk about a very negative impact of the Brexit on the UK financial sector. Um, we have to de-dramatize, of course, there have been many figures in the newspapers about possible job losses um, as a result of Brexit, but we we'll only, don't only have to look at what is Brexit, but we have to look at also what are other challenges in the financial sector and try to also distinguish what is related to the EU and what is not related to the EU. So what we need to do is, first of all, let's say we need to distinguish very carefully between UK domestic financial sector issues and then impact on the City of London, as I said. Let's say and these are very different issues. Basically, what has the EU done is trying to liberalize um, provision of services overall in the EU. But what, if we look at the EU today, the financial sector remains very national. So overall, of course, the city has specifically benefited from this liberalization of financial services and centralized a lot of services from the city towards the rest of the EU. But there is, that is the city as a financial centre. There is a lot outside the city as well of financial services which are provided by banks all over the UK and all over Europe. Also, if you look at banks, uh, banks themselves, let's say, are not necessarily so international as we think. If you look at banks in the EU today, banks are by and large national. And that's one of the problems which, for example, the ECB as the main supervisor for 19 uh, European Union countries, banking supervisor, has today. That Banks are not sufficiently European. There are, of course, a few exceptions, but by and large, banks are national. Of course, some banks have become a bit more international, but as I said, they are the exception rather than the rule. Of course, at international level, we have also some very international banks, above all the US banks, recently also a bit more chi Chinese banks and uh, Japanese banks, but again, it remains a very national um, sector. But why I would say would like to dramatize a bit the effects of um, Brexit on the city 
is I think, let's say, disagreement which was raised before Christmas between Juncker and May, which clearly, as many of us have already discussed before me, um, clearly led the groundwork for what will be the basis for the future. And I think, let's say, what we will have, certainly for the transition period, and we don't know what is the transition period, how long it will last, is clearly a Norway-type agreement for, um, for the UK. So we will not have a cliff edge, that is very clear. I want to contradict what Daniel was saying. It's very clear now, let's say, there's an agreement on the budget. Uh, in early December, there was an agreement on the role of the Court of Justice. There's an agreement on the relation between Ireland and Northern Ireland and on the EU citizens. Hence, we can now start to discuss in 2018 what the future framework will be. Of course, apart from an EEA solution, we have also the other possibility is for me a Swiss solution, which is bespoke agreements for different sectors. So I think, let's say, it will be in the future one or the other, or it will be a Norway-type agreement. And I wouldn't be probably so negative as Daniel put it, let's say that you have nothing to say if you're in the EEA. If you look at Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland, they are involved at working level in many of these committees within the EU today. Um, of course, they are involved in Schengen as well. That's something we'll have to see how this, this will be solved. But um, for example, the Swiss ambassador as well, if you speak about the Swiss solution, Swiss ambassador Swiss, which are part of the Schengen agreement, are involved, for example, in the council, which is just discussing justice and home affairs. So there are many things which are not discussed in the newspapers, which are happening on a day-to-day -day basis in Brussels, where basically, on a day-to-day -day basis, let's say, practical arrangements are made where, uh, let's say, non-EU countries are involved in the decision-making process on EU matters. So, if you look then at EU financial markets, we have to remember they are very diverse. I mean, we have a huge diversity in European financial markets in savings habits and in investment habits, in uh, investment habits by households, investment habits by enterprises, for example, in investment patterns, whether households invest in equity or in, or in bond products or in simple savings deposits products, with huge diversity. The market remains, as I said, very fragmented, very diverse in, in Europe. Um, we have huge differences, as I said, let's say, between not only north and south, between east and west, but also within countries, some, sometimes huge uh, differences. We have also huge differences in degree of integration at the national level of the financial sector. We know that, for example, Germany has still a very fragmented sector at the national level, whereas other countries like France have very, very much more integrated financial sector. So there are much, a lot of differences at the uh, national level and, and overall at the European level. What is the development of the financial sector a factor of, let's say it's a de the factor of demand for credit by households and firms. It's uh, by these savings and investment patterns, by broader market developments and by presence of institutional investors. And again, let's say all these factors differ a lot according to the EU member states. If you look at, for example, the UK, you see the UK has a very high degree of demand of credit by households. It's one of the largest, the most indebted EU countries. But that's it's a local issue, it's not an issue which is determined by EU developments. It's, I think, just after Denmark and the Netherlands, the country which has the highest level of uh, mortgage credit as a percentage of GDP. Savings and investment patterns, for example, savings in the UK is entirely different from the savings patterns in Germany. I mean, the UK households invest much more into investment funds than, for example, in Germany, where it's mostly deposits. Market developments, we heard just before me, let's say, what may be the impact of Brexit, but as, as uh, was said before me, I mean, most enterprises invest based on 
national, local considerations, not because of international considerations. And then, of course, we have a huge diversity in Europe on the presence of institutional <coughs> investors. The UK has a big group of institutional investors, insurance companies and pension funds. In other countries in the EU, they are not present. So we have a very diverse market. What has the EU tried to do? As I said, let's say, try to stimulate market integration. But if you look at it now, 25 years after the single market, after 1992, they succeeded at the wholesale level, not at the retail level. So retail cross-border provision of financial services is 1% today. So there's almost no cross-border provision of financial services in the retail area. It's 1% of the volume of retail products today. So basically the financial markets where the EU has succeeded is at the wholesale level and then also still with many caveats. And that's where the city of London story comes in. So if you then look at the financial sector, how, I mean, can you determine what are the basis of success for the financial center? Of course, there are many, many factors which play a role in the development of a financial center. Um, I've listed them here. There are probably even more. I mean, and, and if you look at this list, you will see that probably there is only one where the EU comes in. It's the issue of the regulatory regime. There are many other factors which determine, let's say, why London is such a very important financial center today. Critical mass of operations, proximity to trade, the currency, regulatory regime. But in the regulatory regime, I would say that, for example, labor market rules are probably as important for financial firms to go to a certain place as, for example, the, uh, the other financial market regulations. Hiring and firing rules for the UK, for the city, have been, I think, one of the most important elements to attract, above all, European companies to settle down in London, probably as important as the EU's um, passport regime which we have. And then we have taxation, which is, by the way, also an area which has not been harmonized at all at European level. Other issue is infrastructures and interconnectedness. Wiring, IT, is so extremely important for financial services today, which again is a factor which, yeah, which is also something which you don't move overnight or which you cannot change overnight. Let's say this interconnectedness between all trading platforms, between clearing platforms, between settlement platforms, a very important issues. And then finally, of course, abundance of uh, qualified labor, important. Of course, there the EU may have an impact if there is a problem with the migration, between the EU and the, and the UK, but I think also on that, that agreement which was reached in December is fairly important. So London managed to become the EU's leading financial centre, but if I look at one of these ratings which some of you may know, ZEN, which rates the financial centres in the world, London is number one, Wall Street is number two, the other European financial centre which is the second is Zurich, since a very long time. And Zurich is not part of the EU at all, has even no bespoke agreement on financial services with the EU. So Zurich, whatever it is according to that rating, is the second in that, uh, in that listing, even if Zurich is not a, a part of the EU. So again, let's say just to underline that the EU is important, and some of these things are important, and that's the things which on which I have worked personally a lot, this issue about the passport, but it's certainly not the only thing. So what are the financial sector's challenges if we look at the financial sector today? Um, I think the biggest challenge probably today is the last one, digitalization and blockchain. Again, it's not an issue which is influenced by what the EU, maybe influenced what the EU is doing, but it's a global development. I was speaking about this um, for a company in London in the month of April, State Street, one of these big uh, US um, institutional investors. 
And at the end, uh, I spoke about Brexit, and then at the end the CEO came then, the CEO of the, the global firm of State Street, and he said, Phew, the job losses as a result of blockchain and digitalization for the city will be much bigger than Brexit will be. So we don't have to look only at static developments, we have to think about dynamic developments, what is going to happen in the future. And I think if you look only think about blockchain and what it means for, for example, integration of contracts which firms will have and how things will be fully automated, I think it is just uh, mind-boggling and very difficult to imagine at this uh, stage. Of course, other issues are profitability and market capitalization. I mean, if you look at US banks today and you compare to EU banks, the difference in market cap is just, again, amazing. European banks are a few around close to 100 billion market cap. The four of the five largest US banks have a market cap of around two to 300 billion. So there is a huge problem at European level of profitability still today about the banking sector. And that's the same, by the way, for the British banking sector, not only for the continental European part. There's still an issue about regulation and supervision. That's my, uh, my bread and butter at SEPS. I work on regulatory, financial regulatory issues since about 25 years. We're still absorbing a lot of regulation as well on the banking capital side, as well as on the uh, market structure side now related to MIFID II, for example, on how banks can deal with uh, investors and what uh, rules they have to respect. Supervision by the ECB is still an issue. We have seen these uh, bank failure cases in the month of June, where there's still a lot of questions about, let's say, whether the current framework is working. But it's, still, it's all fairly new, I would say. Our new framework of banking supervision by the ECB is basically three years old and we're still learning by doing. And then the other issue, of course, which I mentioned already, is market integration. An issue for the EU remains integrating its financial markets like it is, for example, for its energy markets, for its digital markets, for its uh, markets for professional services, etc. So what will be the impact of uh, Brexit? Uh, of course, we heard a lot before me about the uncertainty of the future trade regime. What is the cost of uncertainty? But I think, let's say, again, and I was in the city in December as well, uh, speaking to people from the banking sector. The fact that there was this agreement between May and Juncker was extremely important to kind of take away a bit of the uncertainty about what the future trade regime will be. I think, let's say, the, the big question is now, um, of course, the transition and how long the transition will last. But essentially, the transition will be like what we have with Norway today. Um, what is then the cost of the loss of the passport for these cross-border banking and infrastructure business? As I said, it's only important for the wholesale business. But even then, for certain sectors, you can overcome it. You can overcome it if there will be an equivalence agreement, and that is foreseen in EU directives. EU directives foresee that you can have an equivalence agreement with third countries. We just concluded, by the way, an equivalence agreement with the uh, Swiss stock exchange, under which conditions the Swiss stock exchange can have access to the EU market and vice versa. And it was a bit criticized to be a bit too tight, but that is what is happening. We concluded agreements with the United States, for example, on equivalence between clearing platforms in the US and in the EU, but we have equivalence agreements even with Asia, with Japan, with China, with Singapore and with other jurisdictions. So I don't expect these equivalence agreements to, to be too difficult. Of course there will be politics in these equivalence agreements and the EU Commission will try to play its role and try to be the power broker, but in the end I think it will, we will come to agreements, but again it will be for wholesale financial services and as I said it doesn't matter for retail. 
Um, what is also often sometimes forgotten, bilateral access between the UK and other EU countries is still possible in financial services law. So you have EU financial services law, but that doesn't exclude national financial services law. So a UK bank can still set up a subsidiary or a branch in a French and under French law if the French agree outside EU law. And that the UK banks can do, or US banks which are based over here, or US banks from the United States directly in every uh, European country depending on the law which is uh, applicable. But one thing, let's say, which I would uh, emphasize a lot is that EU banks and EU firms, EU financial <coughs> services providers, will also want to have access to London. What I've heard a lot, let's say, over the last uh, weeks and months is that, for example, pension funds, institutional investors, firms don't find the same professionalism of financial services in the EU as they can find in the city. Of course, they, they may have, for example, the Dutch pension funds, very well known. Dutch pension funds probably have two or three clients which they can speak to in the Netherlands. But they have an abundance of supply in the city if they come here, for example, for derivative services, for I mean, liquidity management, etc. So they will prefer to, have to come to the city to have an offer of, say, 10, 15 suppliers, rather than to stay in the Netherlands and to say, look, we'll try to find the same which we used to find in London in the past, let's say once uh, the UK is outside uh, the EU, try to find it in the Netherlands. That uh, will not be seen to be very attractive for EU firms, for EU financial services providers, institutional investors. So there will be demand from the EU side to continue to have access to the UK as well, just because the UK, the city above all, has become so competitive, certainly also at the European level. Of course, the free movement of people will have to see what will happen with this, and we hear a lot about that there is less attractiveness eventually by, um, for the UK, for EU citizens, for migrants to come and work over here. That may be an issue. I mean, qualified labour is a very important element for a financial centre. But I think, let's say, again, I mean, the December agreement was very important from that perspective. There is a clear agreement by which EU citizens, if they have worked, I mean, for a certain period of time in the city, have got their vested rights recognized under that agreement by the EU and the UK and that the European Court of Justice, by the way, will be the arbiter. It is a very important thing, for example, for child allowances, uh, social rights, um, pension rights, etc., that there is a full recognition, full mutual recognition between the EU and the UK on that. But of course, also we know, let's say, another impact of Brexit is the possible lower economic growth and that's what we see for the time being. So my conclusion is, um, fairly clear-cut. I mean, I think the impact of Brexit is mostly an impact for the city and the role of the international banks in London. It will much less affect the financial sector in the UK overall, which mostly has a domestic orientation. I don't think business will move overnight. I mean, there is much more which makes the city than the single market alone. And also, as I said, let's say the EU27 itself will have an interest in openness and in having access to the UK market the same way as, for example, German car producers will have an interest to continue to have an access to the UK market. Thank you.